All right, good morning, church. How you doing? Yeah, there we go. As the little kids make their exit, and big kids. Um, I am Matthew. I'm one of the new pastors. We've been in uh, BG, Northwest Ohio, for six weeks, living uh, nomadically, um, bouncing from parents' house to parents' house, and then um, we moved into our house and slept there for two nights, and then we went on vacation for a week, because that makes total sense. Um, actually, no, it doesn't. So um, anyway, we just got back yesterday, and so this is my first sermon as your pastor, as a resident of Bowling Green. So um, that being said, most of our stuff is still in storage, um, or not in storage, in my garage. And so um, 500 Rosewood is the address, if you would like to swing by and help me out a little bit. I've got about 75 boxes that need unpacked, I think. So anyway, um, I'm excited to be up here, excited to teach um, the church I used to serve in, H2O Kent, over at Kent State. Uh, I did this a lot. I love to teach. I love scripture. I love uh, teaching scripture. But what I probably love even more than that is, is training other people to come and teach. And so I think I'm here, uh, at least in some small part, to kind of get out of the way and to raise up more people because we want to plant churches. We want to see uh, more works be started out of this church, and so we want to see more people be given the opportunity. So I'm excited to be here and to do that and to train behind the scenes. Um, we believe in the authority of Scripture in this church, but we also at the same time really believe in its relevance to our lives. And I think that for me, from my earliest days of following Jesus, I've been really just blown away at how relevant the Bible is for our lives. Even the stuff that happened a long, long time ago in the parts of the Bible that we sometimes struggle to see the connection points. And that's actually where we're going to be today. We're going to be in 1 Samuel 24, looking at the life of David. Um, and sort of the way that I like to structure my sermons is around this big question. And so we'll get to that in just a second. But I think that question that gets answered really ties into this fact that Scripture does speak to our lives in a really relevant way. And so um, we're in the series called The Hall of Faith. That's based in Hebrews chapter 11. We're looking at the lives of men and women who have gone before us, and we're looking at the ways that they have really uh, modeled for us what it looks like to walk with God. And uh, in the past, we've looked at Moses and Jacob and uh, Noah and all of these people, and we've gotten a little bit of like content about their faith and what it is that we're supposed to emulate. And now we're kind of to the point in Hebrews 11 where the author is just kind of listing off names. And in that list, he lists David. And so we're going to talk about David. Um, if you go with me to Hebrews 11, verses 32 to 34, then we'll jump down to 38. It says this. Again, all of the sort of the big names of the faith have been listed. And now we get to verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, and escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, and he goes on and on and on. And then you go way down to verse 38, and it says, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. 
And that part is really significant. It's something we probably just kind of read past, but where we find David in this story is in a cave in the middle of the wilderness. Um, and when you think of David, you probably tend to think of like him slaying Goliath, and that would be this crazy story of faith and trust, and we could have gone there. I love that story. Um, but there's this more obscure moment where he's hiding in the wilderness that I think captures really beautifully the faith of this guy. Um, not the military victories he won, not Goliath, not securing Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, but this random moment where he's running for his life. And we're going to be with David in a cave. And we're going to see this beautiful picture of his faith. So the big question that I think this text answers for us is, how do we walk by faith when life is painful? How do we walk by faith when life is painful? Because everything about David's life is really painful at this moment. And you might be thinking right now, like, my life isn't painful. There's not a lot going on that's really all that difficult. My life is going pretty well. And to you, I would say, that's awesome. Praise God for that. The reason that we come here every week and we study the scriptures over and over and over again is to be prepared, to be trained in our hearts and our minds for when those moments come. And so this might be something that you just kind of tuck away that doesn't seem super relevant right now, but there will come a time where trial will enter your life and your faith will be revealed and there'll be an opportunity for you to trust in God. And so we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 24. You can start to turn there if you want. I'm going to try in about 90 seconds to get you up to speed on everything that's happened right before 1 Samuel chapter 24. So in chapter 8 of 1 Samuel 24, Israel demands a king. So they say, hey, all the other nations have kings. We want a king. And so they get a king. His name is Saul. Anyone remember why Saul was chosen? Because he was tall and handsome. Not the standards we have for preaching here at H2O Church. Um, and the Spirit of God came upon him and he prophesied. But then by chapter 13, just three chapters later, Saul is disobeying God. And then in chapter 16, it says that God rejects Saul and Samuel the prophet anoints David to be the future king of Israel. So there's tension, there's drama. In chapter 17, right after this anointing, David kills Goliath in this absolutely pivotal moment for the life of Israel. David defeats this giant and this army that they never should have had a chance against. And in chapter 18, David is made commander and literally everything the guy touches works out perfectly. He's victorious in like every possible way and then you get to chapters 19 to 23, leading right up to where we are, and it's just cycle after cycle after cycle of Saul trying to kill David because he's super jealous, and he sees the power leaving him and being transferred to David, and so he's trying to kill him. And at one point, he even asks Jonathan, his son, to kill David, who was his good friend. So Saul, deeply insecure, absolutely like this maniacal crazy leader is hunting down David and David is hiding. He's going from cave to cave trying to escape Saul and his army. So we find David hiding in a cave with 600 men. 
Here we go, 1 Samuel 24. We're going to read a pretty big chunk, and I'll pause just a few points along the way and, and offer some explanation, but I really want us to get the gravity and the fullness of what is happening in this chapter. So, 1 Samuel 24, starting in verse 1. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Really, that's what he did. That's okay. You can laugh. I love how like, just brutally honest the scripture is. So he, he had to go potty. He goes potty in the cave where David is hiding. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave, so they probably didn't get splashed. Um, and the men of David said to him, Here is the day which the Lord has said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. What? <laughs> so his guys are like, this is it. This is what we have been praying for. God said that he would deliver you from this evil guy who's trying to kill you. What are the odds that he would be in this cave relieving himself right when you're hiding there? Like, what are the odds? So here's your chance. Like, just stick the spear through him and get it over with. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he cuts off a corner of his robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. So his guys are ready to literally just go after this guy and end him. And he has to convince them not to do it. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. And afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave. So now he's stepping out where there are 3,000 elite, well-trained killers. He steps out of the cave, and he called after Saul, My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your, seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand, for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt me to take my life. May the Lord judge between me and you, May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness. But my hand shall not be against you. After whom does the king of Israel come? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, 
for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. Even Saul is saying like, listen, the Lord, the Lord orchestrated this so that you could end me. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now, behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore to this, swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. What a crazy story. There's so many things that happen in this story that are counterintuitive, that run contrary to what we think should happen or what will happen. And I think the biggest thing that strikes me is this question of like, how in the world does David, in the face of his life being at risk, of a guy hunting him down to kill him, how does he do this? I mean, what happens after like he goes out and talks to him? I mean, literally, they could just kill him right there. He has such incredible faith in God, and I think that's why the author of Hebrews um, highlights David, actually the guy we get more in the Bible on than anybody else. Um, but he gets this little mention in Hebrews, and I think there's a lot of reasons why David's life was remarkable in a lot of ways. It was also really remarkable in his sin and in his failure, but he was known for faith and this wild, crazy obedience and trust in God. And I think that faith, at least in this story, took the shape of four things that he refused to do that were fueled by one conviction. So as I read 1 Samuel 24, I see four refusals that were fueled by a single conviction. The first one, he refused to diminish the wisdom of God. In verses 4 through 7, we see this happen where he goes in, Saul goes to relieve himself, and everyone's like, this is it, this is the moment, and this guy's life, usher in the new kingdom. You're the guy, everybody knows. The prophet has already anointed you. Let's just get this ball rolling and get it over with. And yet David said no. He wouldn't do it. Because for whatever reason, though it probably didn't make any sense to him, it doesn't make sense to us, it probably didn't make any sense to him, God had anointed Saul for some reason. And David would not dishonor that. He says multiple times in this section of Scripture, he is the Lord's anointed. He would not do it. And there, there were these things that were competing with the wisdom of God, right? There, there was the circumstances. Like, what are the odds, honestly, that this guy would walk into this cave in this vast mountainside, that he would walk into that cave at that moment, be all by himself, not have his 3,000 men around him? What are the odds? The circumstances perfect. So for us, I, I just would say, let's be very careful in how we interpret circumstances. They are no substitute for the wisdom of God. They're no substitute for Scripture. They're no substitute for the counsel of men and women who have walked further down the road than you. The circumstances, if you only looked at those, would have resulted in David ending Saul's life right there, but he doesn't. Because he heard the Lord say, this is my anointed, for whatever reason. And then the counsel of his men. 
his men were like, let's do this. <laughs> this is about to go down, and we're about to be in charge. So imagine the scene. David is trying to literally restrain his 600 guys from doing the one thing that they were brought there to do, <laughs> which is to protect him and then kill his enemy. He's saying, no, 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 don't do it. I know it, sound, it seems like really obvious that we should, don't do it. And I would love to know what he said or how he did that. But one thing that's clear is that David heard and knew the voice of the Lord. And he spoke with a confidence that he was able to restrain these guys because it was the voice of the Lord. The voice of the Lord was louder than all the other noise and all the other circumstances around him. And so for you, as you think about your life, who has the loudest voice? Is it God? Are you tossed to and fro by circumstances? Are you following the counsel of people that maybe aren't faithfully walking with Jesus? Who has the loudest voice in your life? Number two, I've got to fly. He refused to deny the will of God. Verses 10 and 11, Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against you for the Lord. He is the Lord's anointed. That was the will of God. He would not do it. And so he steps out of the cave where these 3,000 men in an instant could have killed him because he wants to interact with Saul. He doesn't want to kill him. He doesn't want to yell at him. He wants to bow down and humble himself before him to plead his innocence. And it just defies all that we think should happen, right? But that was the will of God. David knew that Saul was still the king and he wouldn't take matters into his own hands. I think sometimes for us, we we want to take matters into our own hands. When we find ourselves in these painful, difficult circumstances, it's easy sometimes even to use like spiritual language, to use God talk, to get ourselves out. And David just refused to do that. He knew the will of God. He would not do it. Does the will of God prevail over your own desires and plans, honestly? Do you know the will of God? Where does it rank as you think about your life, especially in the parts that are difficult and pain? painful. Number three, he refused to doubt the care of God. In verse 15, it says, may the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. By the way, I just want to point this out. This is not like a, a weird codependency kind of thing. When you look at the relationship between uh, David and Saul, it can kind of read that way where you're like, what kind of weird dynamic is going on there? That, that's not what's happening. David is not justifying Saul's sin. He's not justifying the fact that he's running around trying to kill him. He says, let God judge between us. God will avenge, but I won't do it on my own. Only God does it. He will deliver me from your hands. David understands that. He just won't do it. He will let God do it. And those aren't just words, right? Because at any given moment, those 3,000 elite soldiers could have ended him. So when he says, <laughs> right, that I, I my life, you know, God will avenge, God will decide, God will protect me. He really means it. He's risking it all. He's banking everything on God to deliver him from the evil and the pain that's in his life. He's banking everything on it. He trusts the character of God. He trusts the care of God. 
He believes with every fiber of his being that God will protect him and care for him and provide for him. Where do we go when we're hurting, when we're overwhelmed, when life gets painful? Do we go to God? Do we trust him with every bit of our lives? I mentioned that we just moved and we've been nomadic. So um, Tiffany and I have learned in very real ways, oftentimes in times when we weren't cooperative and we you know, kind of resisted and fought against God, we have learned to trust in the care of God. Um, we had all this fear. To be totally honest with you, we had tons of fear in moving here from Kent. We, we had a great, great thing there. Like, our best friends were there. The people that we planted the church with were there. We had fears about how our kids would do in the transition. We had fears about, like, what ministry would look like and if we would have the kind of influence that God had given us graciously in Kent. We worried about would we find a house. And, you know, I did the thing where I was trying to, like, really seek the Lord and, and lead and love my family and lead and love Tiffany. And so I was really big on this, like, God is going to bless us in huge ways for our faith. Like, if we do this, if we decide to move, God is, he's going to wow us. And one of the ways that he's going to wow us is he's going to give us a really sweet house right away. Right? Because that makes sense, right? That's what God would want to do. He'd want to give us like a million-dollar house for a fraction of the price. Um, but it, it, to me, it, it was like God is going to bless. God is going to provide. And then I remember this moment um, where, I don't know, we were about three weeks out from moving. Our house in Kent had already sold. That was really easy. That part was awesome. Um, and we were about three weeks out from moving, and no houses were really working for us, and so we looked at a rental house. And it was kind of like this moment where we were like dying to the dream of God blessing us in the way that at least I thought he would. And I remember getting back in the car, and Tiffany was crying, and now I'm crying. Um, and it was just like, where's the blessing? Like, wh why isn't this working? And the only explanation that we can give is like God was trying to give us what is better than all of that, and that's himself. The gift of like having to actually trust in him and rely on his character. Like that, we feel like, and by the way, I didn't tell this in the first service, we ended up with a really sweet house. We just had to wait until like two weeks before we moved to buy it. Um, so the story has a great ending, but I feel like we got the best of both worlds because we got this amazing experience, and it was hard, and we resisted, and we got angry, and we pouted, and we moped, but God gave us himself. We were just utterly desperate, and we had to trust his character and in his care, and we got the best of that, and then we ended up with this really sweet house with lots of boxes that need unpacked. Um, so, um, we needed delivered from our doubt and our fear and God patiently over and over. That's what he did. We would go, we would complain, we would get impatient, we would cry, we would mope, and he would say, trust my character. Trust me. I am good. I am for you. I have what's best for you. What I'm giving you in this moment is more. It's so much better than anything in this earth. So, that is the character of God. He defends us. He protects us. He guards us. He cares for us. He provides for us. But more than anything, he gives us what we need, and that's himself. And David believed that. Do you allow God to protect you and to care for you when life is painful, 
when circumstances are not working out the way that you want them to? Or are you running to something else? Number four, he refused to dishonor the kindness of God. And I'll just fly through this for the sake of time. At the end, Saul says, hey, could you, could you do me a favor here and maybe not kill off all of my people when you become king because it's obvious that you are going to be king soon. And in that time, as brutal as it may seem to us, that's what you did. You just kind of wiped out the last guy and all of his people and then you took over because you didn't want them to rise up against you and threaten your leadership. And so David does this entirely countercultural thing and he's like, sure, that's fine. He refused to deny the kindness of God. He doesn't repay evil for evil. And I think the reason is because when you look at the life of David broadly, you see that this was a man who experienced the grace of God in the midst of his massive failures, his very kind of public, obvious failures. He experienced grace. And he refused to dishonor God by not extending that same grace to Saul. So he refused to diminish the wisdom of God to deny the will of God, to distrust the care of God, and to dishonor the kindness of God. What drove David to live this way? I think it was a single conviction. David was convinced that God would accomplish his purposes through his suffering. That God was accomplishing his purposes through his suffering. And I think that's why he's listed in Hebrews 11 and has a faith that we commend. So the question then for us is can we live that way? Can we live with this faith that God is accomplishing his purposes even when life is difficult, and how do we do that? And here's how we do it. Many, many, many years later, God himself would put on skin, and he would come to live among us. He would bring the kingdom of God to earth. He would be God with us, and he would call men to follow him, and he would heal the sick, and he would free the imprisoned, and he would breathe life back into the dead, and he would remind the world that this God who made us is for us. He is not against us. And then he would tell those closest to him that he was going to die, and they would resist it, and they would say, no, 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 there's another way. We can do this by force. We can do this a different way, and he would say no. And one night he would walk into a garden, and he would say, God, if there is another way, Father, Would you provide it? And the father would say no. And then from that moment forward, he would go without fear, without fighting to the cross to be murdered by the ones who who he made. And on the way to that cross, right, his friends would resist and they'd try to do it a different way. They'd try to resist the pain. And so they would chop the ear off of one of the soldiers that was ushering him to his death and he would graciously put it back onto the guy's head. And as the crowds of people screamed, crucify him, he would be taken to a back room and given the chance to defend himself, be given the chance to get a way out, and he would be silent. He would not try to alter what he knew the Father was doing. And Pilate would say, don't you know that I have the power to end your life? And he would say, no, 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 you have no power that my Father has not given you. And while men drove nails into his hands and in his feet, he would ask the Father to forgive them. And while he hung on a cross, he would extend honor and redemption to criminals next to him. The man who was God would die. 
because he knew all along that the Father was, was, was accomplishing his purposes. That that was the will of God because three days later he would burst forth out of that grave, victorious over all sin, all evil, all death, all decay, all destruction. Everything that stands in the way of us and God would be destroyed in his resurrection. So how can we live like David? How do we live beyond the circumstances? How do we have faith in the face of painful things? Well, we do it because Jesus did it for us. The one who was immeasurably greater than David lived this way for us. And those of us who know him as our king and as our friend, his life is being lived through us. Listen to this. All the trust and the courage and the strength and the patience and the kindness and the mercy and the hope and the obedience that life demands when life gets hard and painful, it is in Jesus. He has it. He gives it graciously to us over and over and over again. And as he does that, more of his life is made evident through us. And that is what he is doing in us. He is making us like himself to be a gift to the world that the world might know who God is. His obedience, his faith, his courage, his kindness, it is ours so whatever's bothering you, whatever's annoying you, whatever's making you anxious, whatever is bringing pain into your life, would that become a place where you meet Jesus, where you meet God and you receive from Him and you learn that He is accomplishing His purpose, though it may not make sense to you? The places that hurt us are the places where we most profoundly meet Jesus. I'm so convinced of that. The longer I walk with God, the more I'm convinced of that. We're going to move now into a time of communion as we wrap up, and we remember Jesus. We remember his death, his life, his resurrection. We remember that his invitation for us is to come and to die. We come and we die so that his life might be made alive in us. That is the great task that God is doing in your life. Let me remind you of that, that he is making you like Jesus. We remember his invitation. And as you take the bread and as you dip it into the juice in the back, we have a couple of stations over the next couple of songs. I would just invite you to think about those places where there's pain, where there's difficulty. And even, even as before you take the bread and and put it in your mouth, I just invite you to say a simple prayer and invite Jesus into that and see what he might have for you there. May we commune with Jesus in our pain for our comfort and for the, joy, and for the glory of his name. All right, let's pray.